Okay, hello, welcome, bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again. Episode one five two on Sunday, the twenty seventh of September. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben, and I'm Armish Matt. And tonight we've got Adam Stokes in the house. Um, Adam is a religious scholar and teacher uh, who holds degrees from Duke University and Yale Divinity School. Uh, he's also the author of From Egypt to Ohio: A Semitic Origin for the Giants of North America, and Perspectives on the Old Testament, Diverse Perspectives from Ancient to Modern Times. Welcome to the show, Adam. It's good to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And we were just talking before about things sort of returning to normality, because you're a teacher over in New Jersey, right? Yes, yes. So uh, we're still kind of doing the half and half option. So half of the students are taking classes online, and the other half are on campus with me. Um, so it's been kind of weird. I've taught fully on campus classes for about a decade now. I've taught some online classes, but I've never taught a hybrid of both. So we're still trying to figure out everything that's going on. And with so many people being online, the internet's been kind of crap. So it's run, been running really slowly and uh, we're, we're trying to make it work. So slowly we're making it work. I think that was one of the fears um, of people, businesses pushing more people to work o- offline was that it could... Uh it could ruin our inf- internet infrastructure, might not be able to cope with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, I love my school district, but we work on, I mean, even though we get money from the state, we work on a pretty small budget. So, I mean, um, the, the AOL uh, dial-in that I heard at the opening, you know, brought uh, <laughs> brought back memories to me because that, that's kind of what we're working with. And imagine, <laughs> like, freaking, like, 800 students being on there at the same time. So, yeah. yeah. I imagine, yeah. Um, now, often on this t- on this podcast, we talk about ancient history, um, lost civilization myths, uh, theology, all this kind of stuff. But we've never really f- um, talked about giants, and uh, I think this is what we should really start with. What we need to focus on. Great, um, great. Because I mean, if I went to the average guy on the street and started talk- talking to him about some ancient lost race of giants from back beyond the historical veil. A lot of people are going to scoff and snigger and take the piss. So what's what's the sort of evidence that's compelled you to look into this more seriously? Yeah, well, what uh, really interested me, I like you said before, I'm a religious scholar. And when you look at, you know, the evidence for, and I don't mean to offend anybody here, but when you look for the evidence for all of these events that, you know, the Bible and other religious texts uh, claim to have, uh, there's really not a lot of evidence in it for it. So, for example, uh, with Jesus, you know, you have the New Testament, but outside of that, I mean, you have other Gospels and stuff um, that are attributed to him. Um, but outside of kind of the religious literature, you have only a few references to him in uh, Josephus, uh, Suetonius, Tacitus, and others. So there's not, you know, there's not a thing where you can say, look, we have pictures of, 
you know, this religious event happening, the apostles walking in water and stuff like that. But with these ancient, with these giants, I found it really interesting that in a lot of uh, places and in a lot of traditions, not just in North America, but around the world, even in Britain, um, you have some really just good evidence um, just through kind of the traditions of the people, as well as archaeological evidence, as well as uh, pictorial evidence uh, for these giants. And a lot of people will, you know, come back and say, that's a hoax, uh, that's, you know, this is crap, it's just something somebody made up. Um, but even if, you know, 10% of all of those, uh, all of those newspaper articles about giants and stuff from the 19th century, even if 10% of those were correct, were correct, that's a lot. And that's very, very significant. And I think that far more than 10% of them were correct. I think people actually reported, you know, what they actually saw. Yes, there were some hoaxes. There were some people trying to, you know, get bling and get money from uh, some of this and to get notoriety. But for the most part, I think the people reporting this stuff was sincere. And these reports go back centuries all the way to before the founding of the United States. Right. So this is, this was largely during the, the, boom of archaeology was it in the 19th century yeah, were these... the late 19th century yes so yeah. what what was going on what was going on what are these stories that you're referencing well this was really the first time at least in north america where things are settled uh so so much of north america's history uh united states of america's history before this time you have the revolutionary war then you have the civil war so in the late 19th century it's kind of a time of peace people are able to just chill and so they start uh, actually exploring what is in the United States. And so they start to find, you know, uh, not just um, not just your average uh, farmer Joe uh, is finding stuff as he's plowing and stuff, but also uh, established archaeologists from the Smithsonian Institution, uh, from state uh, from state archaeological societies. They are finding uh, these uh, remains of, of giants. Um, and uh, these mounds and just this rich and vast culture all over the United States. Um, so um, with kind of the kind of the advances in archaeology and in uh, religious studies at the time, all throughout the West, uh, beginning with Wellhausen in the 1860s, that kind of spreads over into the United States and people are using those same methodologies and uh, those uh, same, uh, yeah, those same uh Man, well, I'm trying to find the right Techniques. Word. Uh, the same methodologies. Yeah, same methods uh, to uh, to do archaeology here, and they're finding some really interesting stuff, stuff that calls into question the traditional notion up to that time of pre-Columbian history uh, with just uh, the natives having no civilization and no culture. And I, I've seen these newspaper reports. You can see, if you go on Google, you can see the, mm-hmm. like, the newspaper clippings from the time and photographic evidence and whatnot. Yes. I mean, the the question that's begging is... Why why aren't aren't these on display in like the Natural History Museum and stuff? What what happened? Yeah, so right around uh, this time, the late nineteenth century, um, there is. This is also the same time in history, Phil. If you'll recall, that um, the United States is fighting with the Native Americans over land. So the United States wants the Native Americans' land; they want to drive them out. And so there's a whole propaganda against the Native Americans, basically to say that they have no culture. Um, and that the only culture that, you know, ever existed on the North American continent is this recent European culture. So there's a propaganda both in uh, kind of uh, just general American pop culture at the time, 
as well as within the academy to kind of suppress any uh, any notion that Native Americans uh, might have been advanced, uh, might have a very advanced culture pre-Columbian uh, North in pre-Columbian North America. And so the Smithsonian kind of is the government arm of that. And so even though a lot of this early stuff is found by a Smithsonian, um, Ed, Edgar Smith, who wrote uh, the first kind of uh, cartographical um, analysis of the Midwest, works for the Smithsonian. But uh, later on, uh, his work is kind of uh, suppressed and any findings that kind of question uh, this uh, narrative of European superiority uh, are basically uh, suppressed. So uh, that's why uh, this stuff isn't more open. And even today, um, I was telling on another podcast about uh, a year ago, I went to Smithsonian Institution with my kids, and they say nothing about pre-Columbian America except for the traditional Clovis, and basically people lived in tents and uh, you know clay huts um, up until the time that Columbus came, which is total bullcrap. But that's that's the that's the narrative that's being pushed. But people are still finding some of this stuff in the Smithsonian archives. So there's a very important mound that's connected to the giants called the Menorah Mound in Ohio. And for years, the Smithsonian denied that this bastard even existed. Uh, there was uh, they were like, this is this is a fraud. This is something somebody made up. Turns out they had a, a map of it um, that a cartographer had done. Uh, a very detailed map that they found uh, very recently, like in the past decades. So this stuff is slowly is slowly coming to light. But I think that even though you know we reject it now, that idea of uh, the Native Americans being inferior uh, to the Europeans still just so strongly undergirds American archaeology and anthropology. I think I remember from um, reading when I was reading Graham Hancock's last book, America Before. I yes, think he, great book. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of Hancock's, but I'm sure he was talking about how um, the Native American history was suppressed and how they would bulldoze, you know, mm-hmm. these sacred mounds, and and it still happens. At, there was a story, um, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, and it was in Australia, and some sacred Aboriginal site had been. Yeah. Do you remember this, Ben? It wasn't it an oil yeah, company. Yeah, it was a mining company. Mining I think they were mining for opal, perhaps, and they'd they'd blown up an old, uh, really old was, cave system. I think it had been yeah. habited for. It had been continuously habited for something like thirty thousand years or something. Oh my gosh! Oh my um, gosh! But this has been prevalent in North America as well. Yes, yes. A lot of. I mean, um, in the twentieth century, in the earlier twentieth century, a lot of the mounds were destroyed to basically make what would become kind of proto shopping malls um, and stuff like that. So we lost a lot, a lot of history there. But thankfully, like I said, in contrast to uh, some other things, we actually have a written record of this. Not only a written record uh, from the newspapers, but also uh, the Native Americans' own record uh, itself. So people will say, "Well, these giants never existed," um, you know. Uh, where's the evidence for? And, you know, I say the Native Americans themselves, are you going you know, to deny their testimony as well, in addition to you know, all these uh, newspaper articles and citations that we have? From the, from the Native American side, is that, is that all um, oral, tra- um, oral tradition? That, that Mainly oral tradition. Um, and a lot of it had, so a lot of things got messed up with the outbreak of smallpox uh, with the early European settlers. So it kind of, um, and Charles Mann talks about this a lot in his book, 1491. Uh, but um, basically, instantly, if you can imagine 
So we talk about, you know, coronavirus and stuff like that. But if you can imagine, uh, like, uber coronavirus that just wiped out people, you know, uh, just like in a day or in a week or so. And that's a lot. It's a, that's exactly what happened to a lot of Native American tribes. So a lot of them were wiped out so fast that only a few members retained memory of uh, their ancient uh, mound-building ancestors, and some didn't at all. So there was kind of a disconnect there. So when Europeans asked, you know, where this stuff came from, some of them knew and could tell the history. Some of them could not. Yeah, I think I think Jared Diamond goes into that in Germ- uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. I think he describes yeah. a scenario where the virus spread so fast that settlers are arriving at villages and they're deserted. Everyone's already, you know, the, yeah, the they virus is... Yeah, the corpses, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. virus has got there before the expansion, almost. Yeah. It's yeah. a miracle any of it survived, really. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. So very, very sad. Yeah. So how does this link in with you, your theory of the book from, from Egypt to, to Ohio, the Semitic origins then? So I basically argue in that book that... Um, we have migrations of uh, these uh, giant persons uh, to Native America through, I mean, excuse me, yeah, to North America, excuse me, throughout uh, human history. And I focus on a particular group, since my background's in biblical studies, um, the what I call the Egypto-Israelites, who are kind of this fusion between Egyptian and Israelite culture um, that you uh, have evidence for throughout the Old Testament. And I argue that um, at times of certain cataclysms, such as uh, basically uh, national uh, national disasters, such as the destruction of the temple uh, or the destruction of the entire city of Jerusalem by the Assyrians in 722, or the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, that these Egypto-Israelites know about what's beyond the Atlantic, what's beyond uh, basically their realm, and they go to basically North America as a place of refuge, and they set up sites and communities there. They intermingle, they integrate with the native peoples already there, um, and they kind of spread uh, a lot of uh, Semitic culture and Israelite-slash-Egyptian culture uh, to the people there. And that's what accounts for kind of Semitic aspects in Native American culture, some of which have still been passed down today, um, as well as the very Semitic inscriptions and stuff that, that we find. And a lot of people have said those Semitic inscriptions that we have found at these various mounds are a hoax. Um, but there's really, um, if you look at the evidence closely, Phil, there's really no, there's really uh, nothing to argue against them other than that they don't fit into the mainstream archaeological <laughs> model that there's no, uh, that no diffusionism ever occurred. <laughs> Bit of cognitive dissonance happening there, maybe. Yes. With the yes. mainstream. Definitely a lot in academia. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't fit, so we need to uh, dismiss it. Yeah. But really, as late as the Romans' sacking of Jerusalem, Titus's sacking. Yes, yes. So um, there is a, so the menorah mound, going back to that, um, I'm actually, uh, right, actually, it's funny you mention that because I'm writing an article about this right now for Ancient American Magazine. But the menorah mound, so there is, um, if you're familiar with Judaism at all, uh, there is the seven-branched menorah and there's a nine-branched uh, menorah. The seven-branched menorah is just always something that's been um, in existence in Israel, um, in Israelite tradition. The nine-branch menorah comes about because of the Hanukkah story with the miracle of the oil. So the menorah mound contains a nine-branched uh, menorah in it, which would only have become popular in the uh, late 1st century BCE or 1st century CE, uh, which has led scholars to speculate that the, whatever community built this mound 
may have come over uh, from uh, when, uh, yeah, when Titus uh, destroyed the temple in 70 CE. So is that nine, nine stem menorah built into the architecture of the mound? Yes, yes. And some people have said, um, again, there were some skeptics who said, uh, this is just a bird. Um, it's not a menorah. It's a bird. But if you see the pictures, especially the one the Smithsonian has, um, it is clearly a menorah. Wow. Because, I mean, I, I mean, I love ancient history. I read a lot of ancient history. And I'm thinking, I, why am I not hearing about like a, a Jewish... I mean, I'm familiar with the Jewish exile when the Babylonians just destroyed the temple. But yeah, 586 BC, yep. Yeah, yeah, which is the, the famous, the Rivers of Babylon psalm yep. story. Yep. Um, but this is this is totally news to me that there could have been an exile um, when the Romans um, took over Jerusalem as well. Yes, yes, so... I, so, which points to uh, there being kind of multiple migrations by these giants over many, many centuries. And I think that kind of explains the variance in dates of the different mounds and uh, the variance in uh, Semitic culture. So some of the Semitic inscriptions, they're written in Paleo-Hebrew, which would have dated them to, for the most part, no earlier than 538 BCE with Cyrus's return. Um or Cyrus allowing the Jews to return from Israel yeah. uh, because um, at that time uh, they would have adopted a different script, an Aramaic script, and these are in Paleo-Hebrew. So those are old, but then you have the menorah mound, which has to date to between uh, the first century BCE or first century CE. So I think that there were multiple migrations over a long course of time. It's like you said, the, the, the sort of giant, st- uh, it's like a, some sort of cultural memory that seems to be ubiquitous across the world i mean you, you yes. talked about the british isles it was gog magog who was supposedly the last giant of, of ireland i think yes yes and and it seems who are straight from who are from the bible as well but they're so they're connected to british you know british history as well who are who are the other famous giants because i'm thinking of like nephilim and, and nimrod and the watchers from the book of enoch tell us yes, more about yes. the the ancient giants so the biblical examples, uh, probably the best one, are the Nephilim, uh, the term coming from the Hebrew nephal, meaning uh, the fallen ones. And so in a lot of ancient astronaut theory, uh, which I do love, um, I, I eat that stuff up. Um, so in a lot of ancient astronaut theory, this is, you know, the fall is a crash landing of extraterrestrials. I don't deny that, but I can also, but I would also argue kind of an alternative argument that um, the word Nephal uh, can also refer to a fallen civilization. So for myself, the giants were humans. They were extraordinary. Uh, they were extraordinary humans of extraordinary size and stature, but they're called Nephilim or fallen ones because uh, their civilization uh, fell from power. And if you look at where the term Nephal is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, many times, uh, like you said, uh, with the um, River of Babylon, Psalm, Psalm 137, in the Book of Lamentations, uh, usually it's referred to, uh, it's used in reference to a fallen uh, civilization. Um, I have speculated, and this is something I want to look more into, that the biblical giants maybe had come from Atlantis or a civilization that we don't know uh, from way long ago. Very, very old, even so old, the biblical authors don't even know uh, where where they came from. Um, perhaps uh, the second most famous in the Bible is uh, Goliath, who interestingly is not really that tall of a giant. He's probably like, um, maybe like eight feet, I mean, which is huge, which is enormous. But we have other giants, including the Nephilim, in other uh, biblical uh, texts 
they say they're, they're at least like 12 or 13 feet. So Goliath is kind of small in comparison uh, to, to these other, to these other giants. And they're not just in the old Testament, but also um, my main job is as a Latin teacher. I teach a course on uh, introduction to Latin and uh, mythology. Um, So in Greek mythology, uh, you get all sorts of giants as well. I think uh, you had mentioned Phil on the ad, like uh, Achilles, uh, Heracles, all these other people. And Homer himself says that, you know, these people weren't the same as us. They were taller than us. They were bigger than us. They were stronger for us. And like the biblical giants, they too, especially Achilles, who was a total uh, a-hole in uh, Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey, um, in Homer's Iliad, uh, they were kind of uh, bloodthirsty and violent as well. So, I mean, it's sort of, I've heard this tied before to the flood and the story of these Nephilim or the heroes of old, the men of renown, mm-hmm. getting jiggy with the human women. Yeah. And yeah. then... Uh, like quite a bit of fun. Yeah, and this being the reason for the flood, is that what is that what we're going at? Yeah, you know, um, so uh, it's interesting because Josephus explicitly identifies the heroes of old. I don't know if chronologically this works, but he identifies them with the Greek gods. So he connects the heroes of old in Genesis 6 with Heracles, he gives this whole uh, kind of uh, listing of Heracles' uh, descendants uh, from these uh, ancient ones, these mighty men, uh, Ishkabor in uh, Hebrew of, of old. So he makes a connection between uh, the Israelite giants and the Greek giants uh, very, very uh, specifically. Um, now, it's interesting that um, when you read in most of the Bibles, it says that the sons of God took the daughters of men. Um, that word lechak there is to basically take somebody by force. Um, so it's kind of, you know, kind of basically sexual assault that's going on here. And it seems that whoever the powers that be who were superior to the giants didn't like this uh, taking place at all. And that uh, they brought about the flood uh, because of this. And this is, a, this is attested to not just in the uh, biblical flood tradition with Noah, but uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, when yeah. Gilgamesh talks to Utmapishtim, um, and uh, several other uh, flood stories um, as well, um, including Dikaulon in the Greek tales, the human beings are so bad, this guy literally makes a shish kebab of his own son and eats him. Um, so uh, this is attested to just this cruelty, uh, this violence is attested to uh, throughout uh, world, uh, world literature and world mythology. Is there a Native American equivalent as well? Oh, uh, yes, there actually is. So um, the Siketa giants were known as cannibals. Um, so they would come to the Native American tribes and basically take their women, and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't do what the old giants did, but uh, basically uh, just as worse, they would eat them. And uh, the Native Americans got ticked off about this, uh, said we're done with these giants, and rose up against them and extinguished the giant race. Um, but uh, that story is, is very, very prevalent uh, in, the, uh, in the oral traditions of the Native Americans on the West Coast. Right. I love how it ties together with the, it ties together the lost civilization theory with the, you know, you could say the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis and then the universal flood wiping them out and then maybe some survivors coming over to the Near East and... Yeah. Yeah. And then integrate kind of together. Yeah. Yeah. 
Where where do you think the um, so we've gone over some of like the men of renown? What about the deities in in the polytheistic religions like Baal and these characters? Do these yeah. do these tie into giants somehow? I, I think some of them were. I mean, when you look at Gilgamesh, for example, he's described as a giant. So is Enkidu uh, in the Gilgamesh epic. Um, there was uh, when I was uh, in uh, grad school. Um, there was a book I had to read, which basically argued, I think, um, very effectively that a lot of the, the so-called deities of uh, ancient of the ancient world were really once uh, human beings who were very strong and very powerful. So El, for example, uh, was probably once um, just this uh, really buff, really strong human being whom the tradition rose up around, and he became a uh, part of, for later generations, he became looked at as a god and uh, as a part of the uh, Canaanite pantheon. I also do think bringing everything, bringing some other aspects in here, ancient astronaut theory into all this uh, flood theory and stuff like that, I do think that uh, a lot of the references to gods, especially in the Old Testament, are legitimate uh, UFO or extraterrestrial encounters, especially wow. uh, with Ezekiel and the angels or Malachim. Um, if you, you know, drop those guys into the 21st century, they would call them UFOs and flying saucers. So, is that does that cover Yahweh as Yahweh as well? Then, I, I you know I, I think so. This is it's going to sound kind of controversial. I am a religious person. I'm actually a very religious person, <laughs> but um, I always put that out there because people are like, um, you should see. I, I wrote an article on uh, comparisons between Yahweh and Dionysus. We were actually worshipped together. We have archaeological evidence of this in uh, the Hellenistic era. Dionysus was um, identified uh, for the Phoenicians as Yahweh. And Yahweh was identified as Dionysus for uh, the Greeks and the Greco-Romans. Right. And just the, the 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 feedback I got, some of it was good, and then others were like, you know, this is just blasphemy, and, you know, you're, you're full of crap and stuff like that. So I always put that out there that I am a religious person. But speaking of Yahweh himself, um, it's interesting. I've said this before on uh, other shows, but the name uh, that is translated as Yahweh in Latin is Dominus uh, Exercitus, which really means commander of the armies, um, which is a military designation, uh, which might, uh, if you know uh, anything about, you know, Ashtar and uh, kind of the galactic uh, force, you know, that seems to be kind of a military, de- military designation for um, this kind of uh, group of militarized extraterrestrials who, in my opinion, were responsible for the flood because these giants were being douchebags. <laughs> So, do we think the biblical flood was was the end of the Younger Dryas, the comet comet impact? Then is that where we're going? Uh, I think so. I, I think that comet, and I, I said this to a couple of my friends before. I think that comet was a deliberate comet. I think it was like um, you know something from from like a ray gun in, in Star Wars. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> um, it wasn't it wasn't random. It wasn't just uh, the the comet got locked into the atmosphere. I think it was deliberate to get rid of these. Uh, the these douche, these giant douchebags, literally, who were uh, who were on the Earth at the time. By who? By who, Adam? Who unleashed the comet? Um, I think that the the extraterrestrials did. Whoever ah. Dominus Exercitum is, the commander of the armies, commanded his his, uh, his subordinates, these uh, angels, these Malachim, and uh, they they sent it down. And um, it's interesting because in Later biblical tradition, for example, with the Sodom and Gomorrah story, it says the Lord rained down fire and brimstone, and that it uh, this when Abraham went to see where Sodom and Gomorrah was, 
the smoke uh, was like the smoke of a furnace. That to me is kind of like a deliberate kind of nuclear, uh, like a nuclear, uh, basically a nuclear missile, um, deliberately, uh, deliberately uh, shot at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So I mean, um, that's just my personal view. You, you could tie it into the the sort of Prometheus theory that you know if we if we take it that the aliens have. Um, cast the comet at us to get rid of the giants maybe that they had some influence on the human race and they didn't like what the giants were doing is that yeah i think you know um and it's interesting i love Pro- that's one of my favorite movies uh <laughs> prometheus um i'm a big really scott fan in general but um i remember being really psyched about that movie because that was like the culmination of everything that i'm interested in um but uh i think that a lot of times you have what are called you know these infallible guys starting over again they realize that they've effed up they've screwed up and they start all over again and you get this kind of in the biblical witness itself where you have two creation stories at the beginning a lot of people say that yeah genesis yeah so notice in the first one there's uh just generic male and female and then in the second one there's specifically adam and eve and i think and jewish rabbis who interpreted uh the text way back in the day would say the same thing these are two different groups of human beings existing um and by genesis chapter two that whatever that male and female was in genesis chapter one doesn't exist anymore you have brand new uh creation so i think you know there's this trial and error so the giants were created uh they clearly uh were just scumbags and so uh the the gods the higher powers the extraterrestrials got rid of them and started up again it kind of suggests that the story of Genesis starts either shortly before or at the end of the last ice age. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think that you know, there's only a couple of chapters of the Bible that I think will begin before, uh, yeah, before uh, the ice age and the subsequent flood and all of that. So, and I think you know, I, I would honestly say just Genesis, Genesis chapters one through five are the only glimpses of what we get before um, all the stuff hit the fan. Which is amazing because there were so many generations living before then. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. we seem to have a handle on on modern anatomical humans being around for 180-odd thousand years. Yeah. And we yeah. only have, you know, maybe the remnants of the last 10,000 years or so. It's what yeah. was going on yeah. before then, you know. Yeah, we don't, and we don't know. I mean, I think it's like the, the Yuga cycle in Hinduism, you know, the civilizations start up, they get destroyed, start up again, get destroyed. And I think that's exactly what happened. Clearly, um, and I don't want to knock the evolutionary model uh, too much, but I think that human beings, like you said, as we are now, uh, possibly stronger and buffer and better, existed for, for way before you know uh, modern evolutionary theory uh, claims to suggest. Well, we've, we've tons of archaeological evidence for other sort of hominids, don't we? We have Homo floriensis, the hobbit man. Um, yes, yes. Neanderthal, Denisovans, you know, yes. it doesn't seem un- unreasonable to me to have another race. I mean, you seem to be quite convinced that they were human, but maybe they maybe they were just very close to human that were, you know, yeah. a foot 18 inches taller on average in stature that, and, you know, that were wiped out at the end of the last ice age other than a yeah. few survivors. I mean, it doesn't seem unreasonable. Lot, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think a lot of those different species are, you know, attempts at, you know, um, because like you said, they're in the record. So, uh, we have Cro-Magnon man, uh, Homo erectus and the modern Homo sapien. Um, I think maybe all of these were, and I'm not a biologist, so I'm, I know I'm talking out of my cat out of my, uh, framework here, but I think all of these maybe were existing together just as, you know, 
things that, you know, the extraterrestrials, the higher powers, you know, set into motion. Um, and uh, some of them worked out and some of them did it. And it's interesting in the movie Prometheus, it doesn't deny evolution. In fact, it says evolution happened, but it was just set in motion uh, by these extraterrestrials giving the DNA that produced uh, life on this planet. Well, we know that humans bred with Denisovans and Neanderthals. That's undisputed. Yeah. Yeah. We also yeah. know that lo- a lot of the large mega mammals died out at the end of the last ice age. So the giant yeah. sloths, the giant bears, the, the, the giant cats. So, yeah. you know, giant humans as well. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, how giant I, are we talking? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny because there was a book in the public library of the school that I, where I work at um, called... Uh, the age of the giants, which wasn't about giants per se, like giant humans, but it was about giant animals and just cataloging all these just big ass animals who existed uh, before, before the ice age and that we have evidence for. So if the giant, if the animals are bigger back then, like you said, why not the humans? Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, there's a, there's a book that you might really like that I read, I think it's last year called the Genesis six conspiracy by Gary Wayne. Oh, I've not, I've not read that. So yeah. I've heard of Gary. I've heard of Gary, but I haven't read that book yet. I think you'd like it. I mean, the the first half in particular, it's very heavy on Nephilim and and that sort of stuff, and tr- tracing bloodlines and interbreeding and the fall and all the rest of it. I'll have to check that out. I definitely like to check that out. Yeah, I definitely think you would like it. Yeah, but I don't think there's any denying this sort of cultural. The fact is that it happens. That it's that it's it's everywhere on the planet. Yeah, tends yeah. to suggest to me that it's based on something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, across the board, you have Chinese giants, you have Irish giants, you have a very famous Irish female warrior giant. Um, it's it's all yeah, South America, um, Africa. Uh, this is this is across the globe. So, Adam, what actually got you into um, researching all of this? What sort of piqued your interest in giants to start you off? Yeah, I, um, that's a really good question, Matt. So, um, like I said, my background is in uh, biblical studies, and a lot of the biblical stuff, uh, going back to what I mentioned at the opening, um, a lot of the biblical stuff is, is mythology. So you look at uh, certain uh, creatures who are described, um, and you can tell that it's kind of you know, allegory, illusion, uh, mythology. But with the giants, I noted that uh, the giants were mentioned in places where it seemed to be real uh, Israelite history. So, for example, in the Deuteronomic history about, you know, the monarchy and stuff, they're still talking about giants um, and uh, having encounters with these giants. So the giants, to me, seem to be one of the things that seem to be kind of literally, uh, how can I put it, that seem to be literal about the Bible, that they're not talking about these uh, allegorically or making um, or metaphorically but they're talking about actual giants that they encountered. So this is one of the things in the Old Testament which seemed to have a historical basis for me, especially uh, when you look at the larger context of all of these stories about giants uh, in in the ancient world. Um, so that was one impetus, just the literalness of these accounts of, of the giants in the Bible, um, as well as wanting to know more about pre-Columbian history. I've always had a fascination uh, with ancient American history, and, but it's only been in the past couple of years where um, I've really been able to delve into uh, the work of various researchers, various scholars, which really paint a much different, but in my opinion, much more accurate 
uh, view of ancient American civilization uh, than I was ever taught about uh, in schools. I never learned any of this stuff in schools. I never learned it in, even in college or in graduate school. Uh, but North America uh, had a, a vast, uh, vast, uh, and very fascinating technologically advanced culture um, way thousands of years ago, just as much as, as Europe did or Egypt or uh, any place else. Um, and you don't really get that, like I said, in, in uh, your uh, standard uh, lesson on, uh, on uh, North America. You always get that it was just primitive and nobody really settled here and did anything until, until Columbus. And uh, that's just, that's dead wrong. Would you say um, a, ca- a comparable level of technology, did you say comparable level of technology to ancient Egypt? Uh, yes, I would say comparative. Um, so uh, Monk's, I believe it's Monk's Mound, Monk's Mound, the dimensions from Monk's Mound, um, Frank Joseph has done some work on this, are exactly the same as the Giza Pyramid, uh, which for me is not only uh, shows kind of technological similarities, but also that fusionism, that that um, Egyptian culture is kind of coming to North America and influencing it as well. And just as in Egyptian culture, although there's some controversy about this, I have a good friend, Steve Myers, who would uh, rip me to shreds about this, um, but uh, the mounds uh, seem in many cases to have been burial chambers for the elite, for the aristocratic in North American society, just like they were, just like the pyramids were burial chambers for the pharaohs in Egypt. That's kind of like another example, isn't it, of that kind of culture, isn't it, that spreads across different kind of continents yes. and things? Because burial mounds are quite common here. You know, yes, um, yes. I mean, you guys have Stonehenge and all of. Um, and then the mounds in Canada are very similar to what you get with the European mounds, um, and uh, for and seem to be for for similar purposes and advanced technologies with those. We don't know how uh, you know the, those stones were were erected in Stonehenge, um, and even some of these um, some of the burial mounds that you guys have. They play music um, and are just very fascinating. They do stuff that is much more technolo- technologically advanced than you know we gave them credit for, and stuff that we still can't really emulate today yeah it does suggest like a common progenitor civilization doesn't it it all goes back to atlantis doesn't it <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i was just gonna ask about so. when you sort of how do you think um they got there how do you do you think that they kind of sailed across the ocean or do you think they went across a land bridge or what's your kind of idea yeah it's interesting because um I don't want to deny Clovis. So Clovis is saying, you know, they, um, the theory of Clovis says that the ancestors of Native Americans crossed through the Bering Strait. Um, and I think that's true. I don't, I don't deny that, but I, I do argue that there were other types of migrations as well from other groups of people and that they intermixed with these Native Americans. And I think um, a lot of it was sea crossing, both Atlantic and Pacific. Um, Scott Walter did a thing um, a few uh, a few months back um, where he showed that there's basically a reconstruction of a Phoenician ship, and the Phoenician ship traveled all through the coast of Africa into about 40 miles away from Florida, wow. and so basically proving that an ancient ship 2,000 years ago could have reached uh, the Americas depending on uh, what kind of uh, what kind of winds it encountered and stuff like that. So. That is very possible, and I think that uh, uh, there was a lot of kind of uh, 
intertravel by ship between North America and the Old World and vice versa. And we kind of know this because of uh, the copper that is found in Europe. Europe doesn't have that much copper, but uh, there are huge copper mines in uh, North America, especially in Ohio and the Midwestern region. And it seems like a lot of that copper got transplanted to Europe. Um, and so that, that seems to be evidence uh, for diffusion and for uh, inter, uh, inter uh, cross-Atlantic exchange uh, right there. So I think a lot of it was by, was by uh, water ships. But if you're talking about the original Atlantean inhabitants, um, you know, they had uh, technology up the wazoo. So it could have been, could have been uh, <laughs> starships, you know, who knows? <laughs> so, but yes, we definitely have evidence for um, travel by boat. And in, um, it's interesting because in the copper mines of the Midwest, you have uh, in, uh, drawings, basically cave art of uh, huge ships uh, crossing, uh, crossing the oceans. And um, there's no ocean in Ohio, really. So, I mean, it's basically um, almost landlocked. But um, so where are they? Why are they drawing this stuff? So they're drawing it because um, this is what uh, they did. So they would travel, you know, from Ohio all the way through the Mississippi, uh, Mississippi River, um, out into the Atlantic and uh, go to uh, go back over to the, to the other side, to the side where you guys are at. So this uh, seemed to happen a lot. Yeah, I think we have to revisit, you know, seafaring in ancient times. I mean, we know from talking to Eric Klein about the Bronze Age that, you know, the Near East, they could sell from the Near East to, to the UK without much problems, you know, to, yeah. get, you, to get you tin. Um, yeah. So, you know, is it that much of a, much more of a stretch to go across the pond? I no, don't know. No, I don't think so at all. I mean, the Poly- Polynesians have been doing this, you know, for, for centuries. Um, going back to the Aborigines of Australia, we know for a fact that the Egyptians visited them and had exchange with them. Really? So something that uh, happened um, all over. So, well, what's that? What's the Egyptians going to Australia? I've not, I've not heard this one. Yeah, just um, so uh, same as kind of in, uh, with the Native American tradition. Um, in the oral traditions of the Aborigines, uh, they have a clear cut. Um, basically descri- describing uh, these Egyptian ships coming and these Egyptians uh, interacting uh, with them. And so uh, modern anthropologists, when they uh, got wind of these oral traditions, they compared it to uh, basically archaeological evidence that we have for Egypt, and they saw that it aligned uh, perfectly. And they were even able to date the specific dynasty. I can't remember that. So uh, which specific dynasty? They were able to date the specific dynasty that visited uh, the Aborigines. So um, these these uh, these journeys were, were certainly possible. Um, they knew how to, you know, the ancients didn't know how to get around. Going back to where we started, it, it does really make a mockery of the whole Columbus discovering the New World story that we've been told, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I it, it just I think it it throws it on its head. You know, um, we're so used to just things being, you know, so separate from one another and you know diffusion just really calls that calls it into question it shows that you know we're really much more connected than than we've been told we are so yeah uh, it's just that it's just been so dominant hasn't it the european culture yeah. from the middle from the renaissance has been so dominant over the last 500 years that it's it's eroded our our communal heritage and our story of humanity 
Exactly. Yeah, very much so. I, you know, I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I think that there's a better story to be told that, you know, shows how, you know, how we're, how much we're related to one another. And we, yeah. we sure, we sure as hell need that right now. Too right. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're more polarized than ever and we need to bring it. Yeah, that's uh, very well said and very apt as well. I've got a question for you, Adam. If I could give you a time machine, yeah. where, where and when would you go? exactly where I'd go. I'd go to uh, Roman Empire circa 60 to 80 CE. Um, why would I do that? Yeah, asking. yeah. Why that period? Um, that's where everything, that's like the most, so I'm a, I'm a very big uh, Roman history fan as well. I teach a lot of Roman history in my Latin class. Um, and um, my favorite emperor, uh, you, you British people love this, um, so I, Claudius, is probably one of my all-time favorite shows. I love Derek Jacoby. Um, I, I literally, I, if, I was not a, if I was not a Mormon, I would probably make a shrine of Derek Jacoby and worship him uh, <laughs> and uh, love him. So um, I told my wife, if we ever get divorced, I'm marrying him, but I think he's taken. Um, so, um, yeah, so I love the, the Claudian era um, and basically everything from the destruction of the temple that you mentioned in, in 70 CE to basically uh, the Vespasian dynasty. All of that happens around that particular time. And it's also the end of the apostolic era. So I would have just loved to have lived uh, during that time. And my Latin's good enough. I think I could actually, you know, fudge uh, my way around, you know, you my in. way around. It wouldn't be so crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of the, it's the height really, isn't it? The height of ancient Rome, I would say as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it never gets better than that, except for maybe with Marcus Aurelius, and then it just goes downhill. It just goes, <laughs> goes back after that. So. Oh, cool. Well, I mean, I've, uh, is there anything you want to add, Matt? We're, we're getting close to uh, time. No, no, I've got no more questions. I think it's been fascinating. I've, mm. I've ordered your book. It's not coming till next week, till the 2nd. It um, takes kind of a while. I don't know what's up with Amazon about that, but I mean, I'm I'm, I'm appreciative, but you know, <laughs> yeah. they they seem to take a long time sometimes. What year? It what took year? me forever to get to get a copy, you know, and I'm the freaking author for that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you working on any other books? Any new projects other than teaching? Uh, yeah, I actually. It's funny you mention that because uh, I'm starting a. I'll be starting a monthly column in Ancient American Magazine. Um, I just had an article, the Yahweh Dionysus article on ancient origins, uh, org. Um, and I am working on several projects now. Um, one of them looking at comparison between, you know, the Bible and the book of Mormon. I'm Mormon myself. So, um, that's one of my main projects. And then I'm looking at another project going kind of in depth with those Hebrew Semitic inscriptions I mentioned before in North America. A lot of people have said that they're hoaxes. Uh, but I've been able, I've been talking to people who are um, the main scholars on such things as the Low Slunas Decalogue Stone. And so I was able to get a facsimile uh, of, of the Decalogue Stone from them. And I'm just going through it now and uh, trying to, I'm hoping to make a book out of this uh, to show that, you know, these uh, Semitic inscriptions, at least from how I've looked at them, I mean, I know Biblical Hebrew, I know Proto Semitic, I know Phoenician, um, they seem to be. Uh, both geologically, as Scott Walters argued for, and uh, the Hebrew that's used, they, both, they seem to be the real deal. So that's my big project. But that's going to take a while, and it probably won't be out uh, for a while. When do you think they date from, those Semitic scripts in North America? Yeah, um, so great question. So 
Um, for the Los Luna stone, I am thinking um, there are actually a couple of things in there where it uses a longer consonantal form of some words, if you know Hebrew, than what no. you find in later um, in uh, the later kind of Masoretic tradition, which to me suggests that it's really old because in the history of development of the language, things go from being really big to really small. Um, so, for example, 10 years ago, you might have said, yo, Adam, what's up? Now you would say, yo, A, what's up? So things get smaller and smaller in the development of languages, which yeah. suggests to me that it's really old, at least before 586 BCE. Wow. So before the um, the exile, the Babylonian exile. Yes, yes, definitely. God, I mean, that would just be earth-shattering, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. I, I think there were multiple, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, definitely multiple migrations at different times. And the Los Lunas is probably one of the oldest of that. I was going to say. Wherever they landed, they got as far as New Mexico. So it's pretty impressive. I was going to say, do you think that's probably the oldest migration? That might be. That might be. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Amazing. Well, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed this, Adam. Same here. Same here. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Yeah, probably nice to meet you. Yeah, anytime. Nice to meet you too. Anytime. You too. Anytime. It's been great. Uh, best of luck with your, your teaching and your ongoing projects. Thank you. And uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Welcome back. Woohoo! The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat with Adam Stokes. Bit of a, bit of a legend. Yeah, seemed like a cool guy. Just threw in a curveball there at the end with the old ancient, what are they called, ancient astronauts? Ancient ancient Australians. I'd like to talk to him about that if he was, but I'm not sure if he's an expert on that. I thought the uh, the Egyptians contacting Australia was pretty mind-blowing. I hadn't heard that before. (laughs) No? Yeah, I think we underestimate, well, it's a common thing, isn't it? We think we're so superior and we underestimate Mm. these these ancient peoples don't we think they're primitive knuckle dragging yeah when really those pyramid spaceships travel really quick so you can just get to australia in a matter of minutes yeah it's like doing the castle run yeah 12 parsecs makes no sense i think we've discussed it we have discussed the (laughs) castle run in great depth uh should we do some housekeeping housekeeping Housekeeping. Housekeeping. Cut on. Great. I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil. What have we got? Housekeeping. We need. Uh... <laughs> what are you laughing at? I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil. Uh, iTunes reviews. We need many. We do. We do. We need many iTunes reviews. Uh, we need you to subscribe to our YouTube channel because new videos going up every week and you don't want to miss the Dave Matheson one when that drops. Because we're and getting... It's it got really loud. Oh, Sorry. Sorry. I think you're hitting, hitting the point, Phil. Um, <laughs> because um, all being well, Dave's going to do a full-on presentation about the Star Myths. Excellent. So that will require visual aids. Oh, When's that? Really? When is that? Next week? No, it's a few weeks off, but 
Oh, okay. Subscribe okay. now. Subscribe now so you don't <laughs> fucking miss it. What else do we want? We need you send us stuff. Send us news. Uh, yeah, it's clips, news, pictures. Yeah, messages. Uh, nudes. Nudes and news. No perishable items. No. Have we had, no live animals. Have we had any noteworthy emails or messages or reviews this week? I don't know. I mean, we've uh, Jamie or Jame been back in contact. You know the um, Jamie Lannister, uh, um, the person that you called an, an Olympian, but actually wasn't an Olympian. Oh yeah, yeah. So he re- represented Great Britain at international. Uh, competitions but didn't take part in the Olympics that's Jamie so, you know, that's he's Jamie. cut is it Jamie with the great big ring uh, Jamie's big ring yeah right not five not five <coughs> rings have yeah. we heard anything from uh, Portugal's answer to Ed Sheeran <laughs> since we debuted no. on, our, on our show Eduardo Sheeran on <laughs> that's the one don't believe um, so no we have another fan pining for some of the old old days. Oh, Gav, he, he hate he, he yeah. um, misses us when we just do um, an hour and a half of us just chatting shit. He said, "You know, gotta move with the times. Old. Move yeah. with the times, Gav." Yeah, but yeah. well, yeah. we might do the odd one, like we did with the one fifty. But it, it just gets a bit loose, loosey goosey, and. I drink half a bottle of bourbon and then fall over. Yeah. And then we've got our um our uh, fan in the US of A, I think. Is that Amy? Mm-hmm. Um and she loves she loves Andrew Shatkin. Who doesn't <laughs> I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil, that uh <laughs> grape. Who doesn't love yeah. Andrew Shatkin? Not me. You've just that... gone dead quiet again now, Phil. You're dead loud, yeah, and now you're dead loud. quiet. Ah, it's fine. It's Back fine. on the mic. It's fine on my end. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. It's just it's just whispering in the microphone. Oh, is it because Ben? Is it because Ben's got his microphone dead close and he's picking him up everything? No, Maybe it is. No. Why is it never changing to Phil? I don't know. Hello. <laughs> so yeah, become a producer. Go to the website armsinquisition.com and click on the how to become a producer tab. Uh, we've got a birthday shout out this week for uh Steph Nosnodge. All right. Steph Nosnodge, twenty one again yesterday. For the nineteenth time. Uh, how else do you become a producer? Um, ben, go. Give us some coin. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty, oh valley of plenty. I think you're hitting, hitting the point, Phil. Toss that, a coin uh, to your witcher, oh <laughs> That's right, cough up. Yeah, <laughs> cough it up, cough up a coin. Toss us a fucking coin via PayPal. It's not hard. One coin by post. If you find this thing this thing that we do, <laughs> if you find this valuable, return some value. 
How much mm. is a coffee at Costa or Starbucks or any of these rip-off places? Eight quid, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's probably a fiver, right, by now? I've never, I don't go to him, so I don't know. Is I it a fiver? Know, four, four or five pounds. Okay, so, you know, once a month, instead of dropping the five coins at Costa, chucking our way. Well, I'm not sharing a coffee in these COVID times, so 15, 15 pounds our way will buy us our own individual coffees, and we'll put your name on the cup. <laughs> Just cool. confuse things. Um, I should mention I was on another podcast this week. Oh. <gasps> Moonlighting. Yep, I was on Never a Straight Answer. Okay, how NASA. was it? NASA, never a straight answer, so I should give a shout out to uh, Gaz and Taylor. So it was nice to meet them, talk to them. We talked Good. about about secret societies, <coughs> Illuminatus. Did you? Yeah, New World Order, Bilderbergs, right. Freemasons, Templars, all that stuff. So check out their uh, their podcast. They're local as well. Manchester. Good. So uh, I'll put a link. I don't know when it's going live. I think they're going to send me a message when it goes out. So I'll uh, I'll pick yeah. it up and put it on social media if you want to listen to that. But in the meantime, check them out. They're, uh, I think they do one a week. So mm-hmm. um, sounds good. Build a bear conspiracy. <coughs> <coughs> okay, we better thank our producers for episode one five two. Then uh, Anne Laluni, Jamie Carter. Amy from Insta, Steph Nosnodge, Gav Scott, Raymond Jet Squad, Tambarista 2020 and Full Metal Keto as fuck. You're so amazing in your love. I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their love. Currants, grape. You're wrong, and you're a grotesquely ugly freak. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am gay. That's cool. Thank you. Thanks for your support for another week. And uh, we'll move on, shall we? Yeah, we best. What time's it? (laughs) New mix. COVID-19. This morning, as COVID cases mount across the country, the mass debate is intensifying. People are very passionate on both sides of the great mass debate. The partisan mass debate is heating up. Mass debate's growing. The president is trying to have us cover the mass debate. CBS, Target, and Walgreens are getting in on the mass debate. What's it More lives this year than any other year for the past hundred years. The magic vaccine. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Two million people have to die. <laughs> nice. God, I think I nailed that. You did. Yeah, smooth that. Yeah. yeah. With uh, a few little pieces of COVID news, I think. Okay. Um, what should we start with? Uh, I've got a clip from, you know, Unheard, the pop-up YouTube channel. Mm. Um, Lockdown TV, Unheard. They were talking to Jean-Francois Toussaint who's a professor of physiology at the University of Paris and director of the IRMES Public Agency, Public uh, Epidemiology, Biology Research Group type thing. And he had some new information for me. 
I think oh. you should. Uh, this might raise a few eyebrows. There's talk of curfews. There's talk of further lockdowns down the road. How do you think we should be responding to this increase in positive cases? What is what does a responsible government response look like? Well, we have many historical points that have uh, improved our knowledge uh, so far. The first is that uh, we have seen that this virus probably uh, started to uh, go around the world in the summer of uh, 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 2019, uh, getting out of China with the military uh, games uh, and with the touristic destination of uh, many people getting out of China in the fall of uh, 19. And then it needed uh, some special condition to make the explosion that we have uh, uh, observed in uh, February in Iran, in March in Italy, and then Spain and France and everywhere. What's the special conditions then? He describes it as like uh, the conditions before a forest fire. You have to have fuel. What's the what's the fuel in this analogy? Um, in my interpretation, it would be the the, the uh, very mild flu season we had in the previous year. Right. So it'd be part of it, possibly. But it, it, that's this military games. Yeah, this is what about. I was getting at. He says it was it was spread at the military games in the summer. Right. So how are they tracing back those cases then? What do you mean? How does he know that it started with the military games? How does he know the cases went back to I don't know summer last year when the sort of we all know the government in China is probably lying about the exact cases and whatnot. But um, what's the evidence that it was spreading out of China in the summer? Or is it the summer game? Was it the Chinese games in China? Military games in China. The military games, he, he says. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay. Is that really? like is that like the Olympics for the military? Yes, yes or, yeah. is, or is it um, like, like war, war games. games? Yeah. No, right the first time. Uh, Ian Ian Lyons talked about it, didn't he? Yeah. He went to the military yeah. games in Canada. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. It's sort of military again, world games in Wuhan, 2019. Get out of it. No. Yeah. More athletes claim they contracted COVID nineteen at Military World Games in in Wuhan. Wuhan. In Wuhan. (laughs) Yeah, it's military athletics. It's not like war gaming. It's athletics, like you said, Olympics. But how many of these um, military Olympians would have been going to the food market? Do you think? I don't know. It throws it throws into question the whole Wuhan market thing to me. What about the um, visiting the the super secret lab? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's just we don't know, do we? No. We just don't Look, know. Ooh. Luxembourg triathlete Oliver Georget said he fell ill with the flu and is uh, now to undergo an antibody test this week to see if he's ever had COVID-19. He claimed that Wuhan was a ghost town when he went for a cycle in the city, while also saying that he had his temperature recorded on arrival at the airport. Well, I think we're told to wash their hands while entering the canteen. I had my temperature taken when I went through the Hong Kong-China border in December. Really? 
Yeah. But that was the was kind of out. It was known then, wasn't it? No, no it was, January. It was late yeah. late oh. January, they announced public person to person transmission. Ah, oh, right, okay. Yeah. So this athlete's saying that he had temperature scans and hand cleanliness in summer. Well, yeah. something I'm doesn't add up. Ghost town. We've got someone on the podcast here. It's temperature checks in December. Hi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this guy's saying summer. That's six yeah. months before. Mm. Someone mm. isn't being truthful. Are they? Mm. Seems to me that truthful? seems to me that they knew this was coming and um <clears throat> they did fuck all for six months. <laughs> well they did a bit, didn't they? They just didn't tell anyone that you were doing anything. <sighs> yeah. You had to wash your hands before having something to eat, which you should do anyway. Yes. Anyway, I'll go on to the next. I've got a second clip from the uh, the same chappy. He goes yeah. on to talk about um, the negative effects of the lockdown and if there was any positive effects of the lockdown. I thought this was interesting. Being well, we have had with this, uh, with this isolation a uh, very impressive um, positive effect. It hasn't been demonstrated yet. And what we have seen from the Oxford study, and we will have another study uh, published in a few weeks day perhaps, uh, showing that there is no relation at all between the stringency of the lockdown and the effect on the mortality rate in the 188 countries in the world that have declared at least one case of, of COVID. Mm. It depends what he's saying is the death rate. So if it's like a percentage... Then mortality rate, he says. Yeah. Not case fatality rate. Oh. I don't know. Okay. We'll find out when the study comes out. Mm. Well, exhibit A is Sweden, isn't it? Mm. They have they have less excess deaths than us. And and they did nothing, right? They banned um Eight. they encouraged like hand cleanliness and they banned yeah. gatherings of over fifty. Uh, now it's 500. You can have gatherings up to 500. If you look at the streets of Stockholm, everyone's walking around, no masks, sat in cafes, life is normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Well, just got a uh, live correction. The Wuhan uh, games were in October, not in the summer. Oh, uh, military games. Yeah, slightly right. later on. But... Right. Oh, I don't know. Um, Can you have the? Um, do you know if they've banned travel to Sweden? Yeah, now, don't know. I have to close the borders. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be a big thing. You could you could get rid of the virus in a country if you if you had a a, a proper Chinese style mm-hmm. chained inside your house, locked down for two weeks, and close the borders forever. Yeah. You'd have to keep the clo- you'd have to oh, keep yeah. the borders closed indefinitely, like New Zealand. So you've yeah, and so you've got some <laughs> way of of determining, you know, who who can come in the country is is definitely not got it. Seems to me that the we lockdown that. the lockdown only has two can only work in two circumstances. The first is to stop your health service being overwhelmed, mm. 
And the second is to buy time until there's a treatment or vaccine. Mm. Well, I think I'm I'm thinking that when it, this all comes out in the wash, we'll find, particularly for under seventy year olds, that the lockdowns killed more people than the virus. But you know, it seems that way, doesn't it? Especially if you look at cancer and all the rest of it. But well, I think. I, it's a death rate, not higher the, the older you get with cancer as well, kind of thing. Yes. Uh, the thing is, is that cancer can affect people of all ages. Yeah. It's indiscriminate. I mean. yeah. Whereas the virus doesn't seem to be. You know, you can contract mm. it at any age, but I, I sent you the revised CDC, CDC statistics for um, mortality mm. stratified by age. And, you know... If you're if you're under seventy, your mortality risk is really low. But we know that the lockdown is going to kill thousands of people in this country. We know it's going to kill between twenty and fifty thousand of cancer alone. So you know, I just uh, I despair. But you know, why? This is going to sound awful. But why are we protecting the very old people who probably would? rather take that risk anyway than be locked in in a care home not seeing their families they'd rather take that risk and they're they're old look at it this way at if the you know at the expensive of excess deaths in i don't know 20 to 50 year olds if you're 80 years old six months is a large chunk of your remaining lifespan absolutely yeah 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 but it's if you go, but it's the point that you made earlier, isn't it? About the health service being overwhelmed. It's not necessarily protecting those old people, but it's if you if the the older hospitals get clogged up for want of a better term, full of old people with COVID, then it's like what we said a million times, isn't it? When some a, a road traffic accident, instead of going to your local hospital because it's full, you have to go somewhere ten or twenty minutes further, and there's less chance of you surviving or whatever you know if you had treatment quicker but again that kind of thing i guess go to sweden yeah, health health service wasn't overwhelmed <clears throat> we we didn't use the nightingales no they had to be mothballed <clears throat> it's a balancing act isn't it that's the thing yeah and we we pressed the nuclear option yeah um, it's tough though when you don't know what you're trying to balance I mean, at the at the start, I can sympathise because we didn't have enough information. We didn't know what the mortality rate was going to be. We didn't know how it was going to affect young people. People were comparing it to the Spanish flu of nineteen eighteen, that wiped mm-hmm. out thirty million people. We now we know now that it isn't that, but we're prolonging this agony and we're continuing with it. Uh, I don't know. They're they're backed into a corner, the politicians. Mm. You know, so I don't know. Um, it's getting a bit depressive that pressing that really. <laughs> but I was listening to uh, the, one of the podcasts I not often but regularly listen to is Jeff Norcott. Have you heard of him? He's a comedian. He's famously like the one of two conservative comedians that that get regular work. British. No. Sure, uh, yeah, yeah, he's on you know British. the Nish Kumar topical show on oh, BBC Two, the Mash Report. He's occasionally on there, 
for a bit of balance. <laughs> but he does a podcast called What Most People Think, which is quite good. And um, this week he had a fellow female comedian called Tanya Edwards on. Um, and she was going on about the effects of constantly changing the rules and the laws. And I thought she made a really, really good point on this. I think I mentioned this last week, but it was sort of saying, you know, when I grew up, people saying the Tories, they're right wing, they're secret fascists, right? They secretly, they want to control us. So you sort of feel like this is the moment, right? This is the thing that I heard a lot uh, from the left growing up, that the Tories are currently doing that thing. They're introducing measures without recourse to Parliament, announcing them on fucking LBC before it even gets in front of the Speaker. And, and, um, and worse, and- they're changing them every week. So all of these things are disorientating to, and they're not fair either. So it completely undermines the rule of law. If I can randomly be arrested for something today or charged or fined for something today that last week was not illegal, that yeah. means that you're not just compelling me to behave in a certain way that has had no parliamentary scrutiny, but you're also compelling me to constantly keep myself updated on the, on the whims of a madman. <laughs> Yes, that is a good point. You can't disengage. You can't disengage from the media. You have to be watching it every day or every week to keep up with the latest changes. So you're getting fed this 50,000 cases by the middle of October. There's no escape from it because otherwise you end up breaking a fucking law. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're not up to date. I thought it was a really good point, Matt. Yeah. I'm, I'm largely disengaged. I don't watch it. I don't watch the news because it's so fucking depressing. Disengaged. I don't watch the news, but I read mainstream newspapers on my phone and stuff. Do you use like the Google News thing? Yeah, what pops pick, up. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. I don't watch like the news at six or the news at 10 or anything anymore mm. because it's just, it's just fucking constant, isn't it? it this COVID thing has it's just been. Meat and drink. It's been meat and drink for them for the last six months. Yeah. They've loved it. Brexit was petering out, wasn't it? (laughs) Are we not leaving at some point? I don't know. Yeah, end of the year. Under the carpet. (laughs) Under the COVID. The COVID carpet. Yeah, really. Maybe maybe it was um, Dominic Cummings released the Wuhan flu. (laughs) Um, So we could just put through whatever he wanted to on the old he's Brexit. Got, um, I'll leave with no he's got, deal. <clears throat> he's got that bloaty head syndrome from Theme Hospital. <laughs> Did you ever play that? <laughs> no. No. All right. So he reminds it was, me of? It was a very popular video game. Do <laughs> you know who Dominic Cummings reminds me of? Uh, no. Open your mind. Open your mind. From Total Recall? Yeah, quite old from Total Recall. Alright, okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Are you taking um, uh, vitamin D? Vitamin D3? Just my wife. Get out of some. <laughs> no? I have, I take a multivitamin if it's in there, I don't know. It's such little... low doses, though, in those in those vitamin pills that it's it's not going to have. Are you, are you saying effect. it's pointless? That's, is... Well, nothing nothing's pointless if you're getting if you're getting a, a lift from it. Is she is she? It, uh... 
I was going to say now. So is D3 the one you get from sunlight when you make it with your skin? Yep. Yeah. Do you say yeah? Yeah. I've been out in the sun today, so I've probably made loads. Do you not take it? in the nud at noon. <laughs> ben, you, you, your family, do you not take vitamin D? We've got some in the cupboard. Right. <laughs> well, I, I would encourage you vehemently, and anyone who's listening... You need to be taking vitamin D every what day. What dose? How much? Get Only a standalone. Get a standalone. You can soon find out because you don't want to overdose on it. <laughs> but if you go on the NHS website, they tell you that through autumn and winter, it's recommended that everyone in this country takes vitamin D supplement. It is, yeah. They, they, when are they going to put it in the... I, I want to say put it in the water, but I mean <laughs> fortify, you know... In, in uh, not not in, encourage, in, in curry, no, in curry, you can't yeah. curry. Put food manufacturers putting it in like frigging cornflakes or whatever. T- again, tiny levels. It's it's almost impossible to get the vitamin D levels you need from your diet unless you're eating a lot of oily fish. Just put it in Big Macs. Everyone will get shitloads then. There's another study came out this week um, showing. I might get the figures slightly wrong, but um, vitamin D deficiency increases your chance of being hospitalised by COVID by 50%. Yeah, I read that. Really? Yeah. You need it for you. It's part of your immune system. You need vitamin D for your immune system. And be aware that we've been told to stay indoors through most of the spring and summer. (laughs) So we're already vitamin D deficient. Oh, well, it depends, doesn't it? If you if you were lucky enough to have a garden like me, I was out in the garden for hours. Yeah, it was sunny. Yeah, mm. and it's not going to be now because we're we're waning. We're in the autumn and the winter, so you should be taking it, all of you. Right? Okay. That's a fill. Will it do? Yeah. Will it do you any harm? I don't know. It depends. <laughs> if I if I if I OD on it and go crazy, mm. I, don't, I don't think you'll go crazy. Vitamin A. That's the one you're thinking of. Don't know what to do on that. Melt your brain. I do. Take enough of it. I think, I, I think you can take a lot of vitamin D before it, it causes your problems. But but yeah, fine. I'll, I'll open the cupboard. I'll have a look. Like one one tablespoon of cod liver oil has a massive amount of vitamin D in it. So taking a, a Ooh. taking a it, vitamin D pill. Cod, sorry, it's cod liver oil. Is it really made from cod's livers? Yeah. <laughs> you squeeze the fish directly into the valve. The cods even have livers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a serious question. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where it comes from. Cod livers. Well, cod's wallet. Otherwise, you need to be out in the sun for 20 minutes, four times a week. With your arms and your face exposed, and your bare chest, yeah. <laughs> or okay, or well, obviously it depends on the amount of melanin in your skin as well. So oh, the more yeah, melanin you have in your skin, the less yeah, vitamin D you can absorb. Darker skin, yes. And we have heard that ethnic minorities have been hit harder by the COVID. I oh. right? Could I, that be? I'd like to a link? dispute that using some numbers I saw. Oh, so. In Britain, we're told that the, the BAME population are more at risk. Um, but then in, like, 
in countries, in African countries, in um, Middle Eastern countries, the death rates are death rates are lower than ours, even though the caseload is is similar. And I thought, well, I suppose they're not minorities in those countries. Not that that would matter, biologically speaking. If that's what the argument is, that if you are, if you are from these these areas, um, yeah, you would expect a higher case fatality rate in in sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle yeah, East. Yeah, so they're, um, they're implying a genetic aspect, basically, aren't they? And, it, and it, that wouldn't seem to be the case if if in the countries. The thing is, what about average age? What's the average age in Ethiopia? I don't know. It's, okay. it's a Young. lot lower than it is in Western Europe. So it's it's like, like there's no even easy like, answers. Even Iran, it? though, Iran and Saudi Arabia and all that. Do you know what the other thing as well? In all those countries, a lot more sun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is. See? Dr. Phil. Yeah. We just Put don't. The frigging cornflakes. <laughs> We, we just something in the water is. Oh, do you want to have you anything more on COVID, or do you want to move on to miscellaneous stuff? It's miscellaneous, all the way, Mister. <laughs> <laughs> One of my um, favourite. Uh, supermarket brands is having a revamp. Aldi. Mm. No, this morning, Uncle Ben's is revealing oh. the name change of its rice brand to Ben's Original. Its parent company oh, yeah. dropped the logo after it was criticized as a racial stereotype. Since the 1940s, the rice boxes have featured a white-haired black man, often with a bow tie. Critics have said the image evokes servitude. New packaging for Ben's Original will hit stores next year. Yeah, Uncle Ben's is going. Right? Is it's it Ben's? I just assumed that it was like a black guy who came up with the uh, <laughs> the, the rice. It, yeah, well, it was. All oh, right, as far as I know, it was. And then the guy whose face you can see, I believe he was a, a waiter in a local restaurant, and they used right. him as like the the model for the for the packaging. Right, okay. But, you know. Well, maybe then, I suppose, there is a, an element of servitude if he was a waiter. But uh, waiters aren't all black. You can have white waiters or black waiters. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, what's your thing? When you when you were growing up, you know, when you were your mum was taking your towels to Morrison's or whatever and you saw Uncle Ben on the, the packet, what did you think? Just a nice, Nothing. friendly old black man. <laughs> nice, friendly face, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it's Uncle it's Uncle yeah. Ben's. Like, my rice. Ah, this is a nice yeah. rice. It's Uncle's rice. Oh, it's just, I don't know. I don't know okay. if I agree with it. I don't know if it's just playing into the woke, woke agenda. Yeah, it, is. it seems, it seems a bit an woke, unnecessary change. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's when not like it. it's like a, It doesn't seem like a caricature of like you know. Like a, a, a gollywog or something. No. You know what I mean? That's just a friendly Colonel face. Sanders, on the other hand, <coughs> KFC guy, does look like a plantation owner. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, my God. I've, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
He's a real person, though, isn't he? Him. I suppose that was Uncle, Uncle Ben. ben. Yeah. yeah, Uncle Ben was. Uncle Ben was. Yeah. I've had this clip on the board for a couple of weeks now from uh, oh, Trigonometry. No. Are you are you working up the courage to play it or something? Well, <laughs> it's a bit. It's a bit. Is it heavy? It's heavy. Yeah. You're familiar with Douglas Murray? I think we talked about it with Shane on on one fifty. <laughs> it's the the author of the Madness of Crowds. Like a far from the madding crowd, talking head, but it, it sort of ties into the Uncle Ben thing because he was he was going off on the whole walk agenda and what this is sort of playing into, and he has quite a, like a sobering warning for us about it all. I don't know, shall I play it? Yeah, can do. Cheer us up. Got some fun stuff after this, but all right. <laughs> and it's the same in this country to a lesser extent. You think that most of the, White people are still the majority in this country. I hate talking about that. I hate the idea that we have to talk about white people and black people. But fine, if they force us to do that, let's just do the maths on that. White people remain the majority in this country. You think they are going to be happy to be told your past was disgusting and reprehensible, and not just ordinarily reprehensible, but uniquely reprehensible. None of your forebears are of any worth Your society didn't get anything that was good other than by stealing it. What you have now, you do not deserve. You should give it to other people. You should give it to other people who look like people to whom things were done in history because you look like people who did some of the things that were done. We will ignore anything bad done by any other group of people other than you. You've got to do this for all the rest of time. Are you happy with that? You think you're going to win? You think that the British public's going to deal to, to suck that up forever? You think that they're going to be willing to sit there and take it as they're told that our forebears all had the best imaginable time? You think that's going to work? Oh, it might work this year. It's not going to work for very much longer. And I can see exactly what the play is that comes back, which is that's a shame. We have put an awful lot of faith in this pluralistic, multicultural ideal. Turns out it wasn't wanted. How do you unknit that without going to hell? These people are playing with the most dangerous elements of our society. It's like seeing a child playing with a nuclear device. And we've got to stop. Heavy stuff. That's all. Well, it lines up a bit because he sounds a bit like Mark Corrigan from uh, Peep Show doing a, doing a <laughs> going off on one. <laughs> David Mitchell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think I think there's a there's a warning in there. Mm-hmm. I think the thing is, is you're giving fuel, aren't you? The way he frames it there is probably how... To extreme nationalism and yes, fucking yeah, white right supremacy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just, it's so divisive, that's why. Mm. Like Adam, well, yeah, Adam was talking before about br- things that bring us together, and that's mm. what we're missing. Mm. We're constantly focusing on things that divide us, and it's not good for us. I, look what's happening no. in the States. It's a fucking powder keg. 
Yeah. The uh, Proud Boys are out again as well. Someone someone referred to them as Trump's brown shirts. Who's that? The sorry? The Proud There's a group called the Proud Boys. They're nothing um, though. You could probably put them yeah. in. You could probably fit them in this room. Yeah. They really. It's like the KKK. They, they fucking don't. They essentially don't exist. Look at um. What's it? The BMP. You know, give put yeah. them on a platform. Put up. Put them on Question Time and destroy them there. That worked very well. Yeah. But, oh, I don't know. Anyway. Would it, I don't think that sort of thing would work nowadays, though. How do you mean? I think if you gave a platform to... Like, if you, if you tried the same thing again, I'm not, I'm not even sure it would work. That, that destruction by, by sort of public flogging. Discourse. Yeah, I mean it should work, but do you think it would would be as effective in in these times where everyone's you can't kind of thinking you can't bomb an idea. You have to defeat an idea with a better idea, yeah. and if you just ignore it, shun it, it just goes underground and festers, and then it rises to the surface when things are polarized. You can't ignore this stuff. You have to. This is why we need speech, free speech. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to put these ideas down. But the, the part of the problem is we've 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 abandoned MLK. Judging people by the content of a character. We're judging people by the skin. It's fucking gotta stop. Mm. It has to stop, like you said. New York University of the week's reintroducing segregation. What the fuck? Going backwards, yeah. Anyway, rant over because it, it upsets me. <laughs> really does. Where's the fun stuff? <laughs> well, there's a new drama out on Sundays on ITV. The Singapore Grip. Um, Have you heard it? Uh, is that what I think it is? <laughs> well, there's been some <laughs> there's been some confusion over the title, <laughs> and luckily Phil and Holly. From this morning, they're here to clear it up for us. Oh, no. uh, I think there's an economic uh, explanation to it, but you might be in. Do you? Well, no, I, no I don't think there is because uh, we 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 talked this morning about how we were going to explain this, and we felt that it was our duty to explain it. Uh, how do we do this? And then we thought, well, the best thing to do is to actually get a doctor involved. So, uh, so that's what oh, we've done. Oh, it's the best thing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so here, with your explanation, if you've been watching on Sundays and thinking, I don't know what it means, with your explanation, here is Dr. Zoe. The Singapore grip is a sexual technique which involves the woman using her vaginal muscles to stimulate a man's penis during intercourse whilst they both remain stationary. So you're quite happy that you're not the one that has to explain <laughs> that. Wow. That's, I mean, is that in episode three? <laughs> I, I, I haven't got there yet. There you go. There you go. That's a Singapore grip. Okay, so let's Google that later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I've, I've two more funny things. Have you anything, have we any other new stuff to go through before we finish on the funny things? Um, there was... A couple of things. Oh, I know. No, there was the. Um, I was just going to talk about the 
bosses ramping up remote surveillance for workers from home. Oh, what's that about? So there's a lot of a lot of bigger companies are looking into purchasing software that allows them to detect when people are on their computers <laughs> so that they can monitor who's who's at work when everyone's working from home, which I think is a bit a bit shitty. Um yeah, I mean the thing is, is uh, Outlook does that anyway, doesn't it? If you have Outlook and it's on, it says it's that you're on, there. Uh, teams, Teams, yeah. yeah. Well, Teams does it, but I'm sure Outlook does it as well. It knows that you're logged on to Outlook. If you, it's all links, but I mean, who's going to mm. spend? You need someone to spend all day, like, or create an algorithm to say who's who's doing what when and. Yeah, I think is it not sometimes just a miscommunication between. Like I read that article that you sent, and was it not something that management had said they'd brought it in because um, to stop unnecessary meetings of something? Well, that's, that really that's it could the excuse be. they'd say. But then it, things can get misconstrued, can't they? Hmm. Was... It wouldn't take a, a stretch of the imagination for it to be used in that manner hmm. eventually. Part of the report was someone was instituting like 9am opening of the day meetings. It's like a register, yeah. using it as like a register, so to make yeah, sure everyone yeah. was present. That was but, the thing, was that the thing to reduce unnecessary meetings, having that one at nine or something? Yeah, yeah, that was the rationale for doing it. But it's like Ben said, it'll all just be automated with an algorithm. They'll be able to measure sure. your keys, they'll be able to count your keystrokes like you do every Keystrokes, yeah. I you bet know, so. Yeah, there's no you. escape. <laughs> There's no escape from the algorithm. <laughs> well, like what's, well, why why can't you be measured on on you know your performance outcomes? Productivity it's too difficult to yeah. measure that. <laughs> yeah, productivity mm. is what it should be. I think the one good thing is um, working in NHS, you will never <gasps> be able to afford any of these monitoring systems, <laughs> and also implement them in a coherent and. Uh, <laughs> timely manner yep. they'll well, probably half roll it out and say oh fuck can't do it didn't they famous <laughs> try and, didn't they famously try and roll out some new IT program a few There's, years ago for, for the last 20 years <laughs> they've tried some Windows 95 <laughs> they've tried to create a unified NHS database to get rid of paper records and the last attempt got up to a billion pounds, and they gave up. Still paying for it. And that—that that was like a few years ago. They just stopped and said it got to a billion. It was supposed to cost like two hundred million, and it went to five, like three, five, seven, a billion. Giving up now. Yeah, I mean, how difficult could it be just to build a a program that? It's because all different kinds of specialisms need different kinds of things from the databases. So all the databases are separate. Although I think there is one that like the medical side might use that's called EMIS and we used to use it, but it was just rubbish for what we needed. So we have our own kind of database and like, so you can pull details to, automatically that fill in you know like your name and address and nhs number and things but um making them all talk to each other i think that was the issue basically 
I mean, other than like in a pandemic, why would you need to be able to access records from the other side of the country? It's deficiencies. It's not necessarily that. It's basically, if you've never been to a hospital and seen people pushing around trolleys worth of paper records, yeah. that, yeah. stopping that. So it's just a, so it's more about digitising the paper stuff. Digi- and it's robots it, stealing people's jobs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's making it more efficient, isn't it? It's obviously, and the other thing is losing records, I bet it's a big thing. It's yeah. all paper. So I'm sure when I've been for like a medical point or my wife has been something at the hospital to do with her eyes, I'm sure you went to reception and they gave you like a wad. And these were your notes and you took them to your appointment and you brought them back or something stupid like that. Yeah. Crazy. I've got a fun medical fact. Um, did you know that... <laughs> Uh, most people have an above average number of arms, and the 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 facts behind that it, it's rubbish. Really, it's just some because some people are born with only one arm, but no one is ever born with three arms. The average number of arms oh. across the entire population is less than two, so yeah. most people have an above average number of arms. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. My uh, my wife was um, telling me a story, I think she'd read on Reddit, about chimera, I think it's called, when your body kind of absorbs someone else's DNA. We heard about this. So it happens in utero. Chimera? Yeah, so a twin. Yeah, so you absorb a twin, basically. I don't know, like the embryonic stage, I don't know. And um, basically this woman had had a, a baby and something happened and it ended up having a DNA test. And the test came back and it said, there's no way this DNA is, doesn't, didn't match her DNA, basically. And eventually got down the line and it was, she was a chimera. She'd absorbed a twin and her ovaries were her twin's ovaries. Or she had four ovaries, I don't know, something like that. Wow, like no teratoma yeah. or anything? I don't know what that teratoma is, Ben. So oh, it's like a... It's like the remains of a partially absorbed twin. So you get like a tumour with teeth and... Yeah, hair. maybe. She might have had one, but that's the only bit of the story I heard. Yeah, so the ovaries weren't her ovaries, basically. They had different DNA. The eggs had different DNA. Wow, so the ovaries are present in utero? Well, yeah. no, they must have developed from that. The eggs appear. You're born with all your eggs, aren't you, as a woman? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. So they're there in yeah, the womb? Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hell's bells. So weird stuff. Like that. I'm reading this book about um, about mush, uh, um, mycelium neck, but it's about fungi, really. And um, he talks about how um, bacteria kind of absorb each one another's DNA, basically horizontally, not just through um, breeding, so they can actually absorb it by. Kind of intermingling, basically. The they don't. They don't have any way of doing doing it any other way because they they um, reproduce asexually. They just split off. Mm. There's no way of you. You wouldn't ever get any other lineage of DNA in a in a colony. So it's, it is interesting that how they they do that. But mm. so it's a interesting adaptation, I guess. Well, they're unique, aren't they? 
mushrooms and the mycelium network. It's unique. Some people think they're like aliens, like they came on an asteroid or a comet. It does talk about panspermia, and um, yeah. I'm starting to believe the panspermia spermia thingy. But the thing is, is a lichen is, is, is symbiotic. It's a fungus and a bacteria, I think, together. Mm. And one can't exist without the other, basically. One of the pioneers of panspermia is um, Professor Chat. Oh, what's the... Shatkin. No, the Indian name Chat 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 Chat. Chat. Chat Prabhati? Can't remember his first name. His surname is Wick Ramasinga. Mm-hmm. And he was a pioneer of panspermia in the 70s. Right. And he's still going strong. Still hey, appears on podcasts. And he thinks uh. that COVID came from space. Wow, get him on our podcast. <laughs> um, he's big friends with um, George. Um, oh, yeah. Quaker George. Right, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the thing is, he's getting on in years, and I think he doesn't do a lot of appearances anymore. But Chandra, Chandra, Pro- Professor Chandra Rick Wamasinga. So, uh, right. Just see if he'll record a conversation and we can, we can put it on. Fit it in. Stop it playing your pen. Us, yeah. mm. Stop clicking your pen. Stop it! Stop it! Something, isn't he? What uh, what condition does he have, Matt? Is it OCD? Ben. That is he busy hands. It's just it's just a bit of an idiot, isn't he? <laughs> Can you not diagnose him for fiddling around it's probably he's probably preoccupied with his work isn't he since he was like doing writing some fucking emails whilst Adam was talking for half an hour so you know stress probably stress related yeah yeah what 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 would be the uh, treatment um what he does already going for a walk when he can basically going on his bike um Frequent masturbation. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing. Singapore. Yeah. Uh, I think grip. of more sling. <laughs> Singapore grip. Grip, sorry. Yeah, that's, a, that's a cocktail, isn't it? <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway, um, President of the Free World, Donald Trump's been casting aspersions this week about Joe Mental's mental fitness again. <laughs> Joe Mental. <laughs> You called him, that was a bit of a Freudian slip there, Joe Mental. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden's uh, physical and mental fitness, 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 fatness. You know the one? So uh, let's check it out. What a voice. Have you ever tried opera? What a voice that everybody has. That's true. I wouldn't say it. She said... He has no idea where he is, but I would never say it. I won't say it. I refuse. No, but don't underestimate him. Look, he's been doing this for 47 years. And I got a debate coming up with this guy. No, it's true. You never know. You never know. They give him a big fat shot in the ass and he comes out. And for two hours, he's better than ever before. You know? Problem is, what happens after that? Nah, we're going to ask for a drug test. We are. I'd like to have a drug test. Both of us. I'll take it. He'll take it. They give him a big fat shot in the ass. And 
it's going to be car crashes. It's just going to be annihilated. I heard, I think it was Nancy Pelosi again oh, yeah. saying that it shouldn't he, happen. He, he can't, yeah, because he won't tell the truth. Donald but, Trump won't tell the truth. This was her excuse. Not that I don't think he can't do it, but. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just so transparent, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, I've got one more clip. Unless we've got mm-hmm. anything to add? Nope. Is Ben back doing emails now? Sorry. No, have, we, right. have we lost you? Have we lost you, Ben? No, do, you know what, do you know Actually, what he, he was using the corkscrew to stop him from doing emails. Diversion technique. Yeah. Interesting. So were you doing emails then? No. What were you doing then? Just looking at my fingernails. I don't, I don't <laughs> As you do. Stop doing work just for two hours. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Right. Well, Emily Maitlis had a bit of a Freudian slip on Newsnight this week. Did she? Former Health Secretary Alan Johnson uh, joins us down the line from hell, uh, from Hull. Uh, Alan Johnson, I'm never going to recover from that now, am I? Um, you. <laughs> <laughs> where is he where is he let's hear it again former health secretary Alan Johnson uh, joins us down the line from hell uh, from Hull uh, Alan Johnson I'm never going to recover from that now am I um, you <laughs> oh, Alan Johnson from hell Alan yeah. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, five past ten. Yeah, that's us. Should that's we go? Done. Yeah. yeah. We spent. Got some emails to write. <laughs> <laughs> Two million people have to die. <laughs> Who's on next week? Uh, Comitan. Comitan. The return oh, of Comitan yes. next week. The Omnidoxy 2. Yeah, it should be good. That I'm looking forward to that. Mm, yeah, so astronism in the time of COVID. Yeah, yeah, probably the perfect religion for COVID. Yeah. Right, we'll sign off then for this week. Thanks yeah, for listening. Sarah. Take Bye. care of yourselves and each other. Right, some reviews, please. Yep. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> More lives this year than any other year for the past hundred years. The magic vaccine. Oh! Great. I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil, that, uh... <sighs> like a judgment day and terminating mode like... Here's more from Dick Pound. I got hairy legs. I got hairy cunts! I'm literally a communist! I can't have children with a wall. <coughs> uh, Cut out. Great. <laughs> <laughs>